Welcome to Vidato 2 a conversation pace. My name is Brian Rossetti. I'm the founder of Vidato 2 a coaching platform for runners of all levels. Our podcast brings you the stories behind athletes and coaches who made a mark in the sport of running. We cover the circumstances, timing, and situations that led them on this journey. Discover the keys to their success, what inspired them along the way, and gain insights into the minds of these exceptional individuals. Today, our guest is Esther Atkins. I always look forward to chatting with Esther because I appreciate how thoughtful she is. She's an incredible ambassador of our sport and currently coaches on V.02 with the McCurdy Train Group. I can go on and on about all her accomplishments. Here's just a few. She's a 233 marathoner and won the U.S. Championships in the marathon in 2014. She's also a three-time Olympic trials qualifier in the marathon. Her top finish was in 2016 when she placed 11th. One of the key things in this interview to look for is what led to her top successes and how taking some risks really backfired. I love when she said, once you've achieved success, don't forget what got you there. She also talked about expectations and being in the right environment and how that was critical to her success and fulfillment in the sport. I love her story. Hope you enjoy it too. Esther Atkins, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Grateful so we're the, for the platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So appreciate you taking the time. We're we are essentially what a block away from the the finish of the trials. Yeah. The day before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know this is a little bit different uh, of an approach for you, right, compared to past trials. So we'll call it that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved. Um, I made sure to kind of note uh, something that you wrote recently, and I think it was. I appreciated it as a, as a fan of the sport and as a reminder um, when you said essentially the most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win but to take part just as the most important thing in life is not the triumph but the struggle. And sure. um, so just to appreciate that you're here, appreciate uh, the struggle. And um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that, how sure. what tomorrow is turning into for you? And, and then we'll back up and, and kind of build back up to that moment. Yeah. Sure. So um, kind of, I guess, a little bit of background is that the struggle is referring to like basically the last 16 months of training um, or trying to train <laughs> and being kind of injured for the first time in 15 years of running. So um, it's definitely a different phase for my running career, but it's definitely made me a lot stronger as a coach. Um, and my approach for tomorrow, I'm actually really grateful that I can at least run six miles. There are many people in this, like I have two friends who literally can't run six miles without doing really serious damage to themselves. But they're um, lining up tomorrow. No, they're not. They're not. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just grateful that I can take part in that way and mm. um, be here. And it's, you know, in January, I came to terms with my situation and... That was, um, yeah, that was definitely the hardest part for me was was kind of accepting the reality back in January. But my goal back then was to make sure that I was uh, I had fully like grieved and gotten over the loss of of this Olympic cycle um, before I came here. So I think I've mostly successfully done that. Of course, there are like twinges of man, what if I actually were fit um, and I had been able to train properly for the last four years? Like, what would I have actually been capable of? I don't know. Nobody ever knows. But I'm just glad to be able to at least take part in some way. After 2016, was it really this entire four years? Was that the outlook right after 2016? Or did it it progress? Like, did you know right after 2016, okay, I've got four years? Is that how you approached it or no? So in 2016, I um, was coming off of a U.S. championship in 2014. I had made the world team Mm -hmm. and run decently there. Um, And I ended up running a very smart race in L.A. and ended up finishing ahead of a lot of people who should have beaten me in 11th place. Um, So, of course, you know, 27th in 2012 and 11th in 2016, you know, the trajectory was good mm. at that point. But I also took a risk and said, okay, well, I want to find out, you know, if I can run more marathons more frequently just in case I get selected for another team and it's like a quick turnaround between the trials and that or, or you know, the selection race and, and the actual event. And um, 
I think I took some risks and I I ran four marathons in 14 months mm. starting with the trials. Which marathons? So I did the trials LA in February of 2016, then I did Grandma's in June, then I did New York in uh, November and then I did Boston in the spring. So they weren't just like even easy, you know, like low key marathons. They were like big yeah. time. Um, so by the time I got to Boston, I was training and I had seen this fitness, especially prior. So I was really fit for the trials in 2016. Like I definitely saw my best training, but of course the hot day didn't really show a fast time. So I wanted to see if I could get under 230. And Boston had been my previous PR. So I was like, okay, this is Hmm. What makes sense, but then um, I was working with Terry Shea at the time, and um, what I discovered was, what I've really learned looking back especially, is that cycle I decided to kind of reach for a goal instead of just finding my fitness, and that's what kind of ultimately burned me out and Mm. set me up for a lot of kind of bad decisions and injuries, and, um, and I think it's been kind of a downfall since then so it's been tough to get out of that cycle ever since yeah so I took a risk and it did not pay off I mean I had four mm. fun marathons that actually all of them went pretty well grandma's wasn't that great but like the other three were actually quite good I was 11th at New York and 13th in Boston and 11th at the trials is nothing to sniff at but. you were 24th right at in the mm-hmm. 2015 world marathon champs in Beijing yeah um, I want to talk a little bit about that race. So you were 24th at Worlds in 2015. You were 11th at the trials in 2016. What were you really shooting for in the back of your head? What did you think? I really wanted to be top 10. You did, yeah. And I... Um, How close were you? And so in the second half, I got passed by Katja Goldring, who ran this huge negative split. She was training in L.A., and she had a lot of support on the course. And she obviously ran an incredibly smart race and yeah. kind of blew herself away and blew everybody else away. She ended up ninth. Um, cause she caught Aaliyah Gray as well, who ended up 10th. Yeah. Um, I was two minutes out from 10th. So like that part, it makes it a little bit easier, but at the same time, it's like if Katya hadn't had such yeah. a spectacular day, I would have been 10th. Um, so it's a little bit, a little bit tough, but, um, my consolation, sure. my consolation prize was actually getting my dog the next week. So, <laughs> you know, and that's, awesome. a, that's a gift that keeps giving. So. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> so what I'm trying to, to tee up here is you had pretty incredible momentum. You're very close to being like top, top, top yeah. in, in the marathon field in the U.S. And then the lesson maybe is you reached too much, right? You see yeah, this I so reached, often. I reached too much, yeah. yeah. And Things I had, are going so well, right? This yeah. is when the mistakes tend to happen, right? Yeah, and also like um, I just <laughs> forgot that the thing that had gotten me to mm. all of that success was simply training where I was at, a lot of marathon effort work, not really focusing on pace, but of course, like analyzing the pace afterwards, but sure. not necessarily putting expectations on myself. Whereas when I was reaching for sub 230, I was constantly focused on 542 pace, whether I was ready for it or not. And every single workout, I felt like I was falling short. Mm. And I could see the distance between myself where I was right then and my goal. Yeah. So that has changed kind of, that's really reinforced my training philosophy as a coach, for sure. So you mentioned the the Olympic Games quote, um, or the Olympic creed, right? Mm-hmm. And so tomorrow, I, I got a kick out of you, hashtag party in the back, is that, yeah. that's going to be tomorrow's race for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know who's going to be running with me necessarily. Yeah. I think Michelle Lilienthal said that she'll run with me, which makes me feel really good because nice. she's my buddy who, we both had a really big breakthrough race in um, 2013 at, yeah. at Twin Cities. And um, she's just a good friend. She's coming back from, her, her baby is four and a half months old. So, oh, wow. You know, she's still breastfeeding. Cool. And yeah. um, she's got good excuses. And I just made a lot of, like, bad mistakes. But <laughs> that's all right. Um, well, I want to step back now and, and kind of talk a little bit more about your story in general. I love your story. Um, to me, just watching how you've become such a great ambassador Thank of you. the sport, um, to, to us is special, and that's why we wanted to speak with you on the podcast. But, um, you know, interesting in telling the story of individuals who, like yourself, um, also like Dr. Daniels, is sort of giving back, helping to grow participation in the sport. So yeah. I do want to, like, 
step back, talk a little bit. We don't have to, to really dig into growing up and the circumstances um, you know, that led to your interest in the sport, but I do want to hear like, what was the hook? Um, I always find this interesting. What was the hook? What was the moment that you can remember that sort of led to you getting hooked into the sport? Oh, man. There are a few <laughs> moments. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, but my sisters ran when I was little. Mm. And I remember watching them run, like, cross-country races and being like, why are they running so slow? Like, <laughs> I could run so much faster than that. And, of course, I couldn't because, you know, I was a little kid. But, yeah. um, you know, that was kind of something that led me to be serious in the time mile. Like, other kids weren't and um, all the way through middle school. But I never actually played any sports. Where did you grow up? Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia. Mm. Okay, that's right. So um, I never played any sports. I danced some um, in middle school, elementary and middle school, and um, and then a gym teacher saw me like taking the three minute warm up in gym class really seriously. Mm. Uh, I had set a goal for myself to run like more and more laps as the year progressed. So like I started at like twenty laps within three minutes, and then up to like. 30 maybe by the end. And you think that came from your the influence of your sisters or just your upbringing in general? Like, you were bored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I also just love pushing myself. Yeah. You know, I think whatever, we're most runners are type A and um, you know, you find something that you're good at and you just want to find out how much better you can be. Did you gravitate towards athletics in general or no? I was competitive for sure but I nobody in my well so my sisters ran but it was like kind of a weird uh like my middle sister did it because my oldest sister did it and my oldest sister did it because she didn't like she was kind of there was some eating issues involved and Mm -hmm. you know like it was some body image stuff and and I didn't really for that reason I kind of wasn't drawn towards running competitively I didn't want to follow into that portion of the path sure um, but I think once I realized that I had different motivations, I was yeah. more open to the idea. Where did the comp- I always think about this myself. Um, the, where did the competitiveness come from? I feel like that to me was the <laughs> foundation for me. I always look back whenever we played my dad in a pickup game of something, whether it was chess or ping pong. Sure basketball anything yeah. he was out to beat us as badly <laughs> you know there was no taking it easy on us right. because I was six seven eight or <laughs> right, however no. old like he wanted to beat us and then we in return you know wanted to get to the moment where we could beat him and, sure. and that's how it started between but is that nature or nurture like, did you inherit it or were yeah. you taught it from his behavior yeah. I mean you don't really Good know question. but I um you know I have two older sisters and I sure. was constantly trying to keep up and I think that's probably where it really came from for me. Yeah, awesome. And then so you went to Case Western. um, So clearly running caught on. Were you you recruited to run there or no? How did you end up at at Case Western? So I chose Case Western for their music department. um, And I ended up majoring in early music performance practice with a specialty in voice. Um, I very very recently rejoined a church choir, and so I'm just kind of rekindling that a little bit. So it was voice. Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So I don't know if you know Jack's daughter, uh, Sarah, is an opera singer. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, Manhattan School Music. That's awesome. Um, Very cool. So I've gotten to see her perform quite a bit. Jack loves it. Yeah, Um, I was always more into choral music. That was kind of my objective with it. Okay. Um, Not really solo stuff. So... It was interesting having to like do a senior recital and that kind of stuff. How much breathing is involved in so much voice? Yeah, so, so much. It's all it's all breath support, and yeah. um, that was definitely really helpful to me. And it's funny. Um, yeah, I had a cool. a professor who was. I went back for some award this fall, and um, there was a professor there who taught me eurythmics. And for some reason, he like zeroed in on me, and he was like, "Esther, you need to sing." Wow. Um, and it took me six months, but I ended up joining the church choir partly oh, because cool. of him. So, so thanks, then, Dr. Brown. <laughs> how did things progress at Case Western where, in terms of seriousness of the sport, how did wanting, I start running? Yeah. wanting to improve <laughs> to where you end up at Zap, where now you're full-time sure. dedicated to this sport? How yeah. did that progress there? So um, I <laughs> ran indoor and outdoor my senior year of high school. 
Um, I had maybe a couple letters from random universities. And that was it prior to high school. Yeah. Wow. I never competed. Well, I did compete a little bit in middle school, just spring track. So like okay. maybe 20 miles a week or something. Okay. And your parents yeah. supportive or just yeah. like... Yeah. I mean, they as long as I wasn't getting in the way of my music, they were totally fine with me competing. And they could yeah. see that I really enjoyed it in a way, you know, that was healthy and, and helpful. So um, then when I... Uh, ended up going to case during orientation I was like checking out the facilities and my coach saw me out her window and went and found me in the building and said hey you look like a runner Uh, would you like to go out for cross country I mean she was desperate so like uh, she found me and um, I was like "Ah, thinking about it she's like well they're doing physicals right now you want to go get one and I was like okay okay wow so um, yeah and she was a great coach and uh, obviously really nurtured that talent that was in me. I mean, it, bless her heart, it was not easy at times. I was not easy at times. Um, but, you know, I ended up being the first qualifier for NCAA cross um, from Case Western from the women's side ever for the school. And then the following year, I led the team to qualify for as a team. And then and we placed 10th or something. And then I think our final year, we placed sixth, mm. um, I believe it was. Cool. Yeah. We'll talk so. a little bit about being coachable about. Yeah. Um, so. So we, yeah, let, yeah, I think that I can talk about that. Um, my, so my husband is a soccer coach and he grew up playing soccer, which obviously has a much more yeah. team aspect to it than running. Um, and he always says, well, you you definitely missed out on that type, that part of your upbringing. Like you don't really, you, you missed out on the whole teamwork aspect of, uh, <laughs> of, you know, sports. So, uh, I believe that that's true, especially looking at, you know, I mean, he's definitely got the more of that upbringing, but he also has that individualistic mm-hmm. mentality, which he looks back on his soccer days and he's like, man, I wish I was more of a team player then too. Um, so we've all, I, you know, I think I've, been trying to in some ways make up for the years that I was in college and not really a team player and apply that more to especially my post-collegiate years but not just as a team player but um your relationship with your coach um we always have this debate um with some of the coaches and athletes I know and I think I always remember a quote by your coach at Zap Pete Ray um and he tried to make the point to me one time, and I don't know if, if you heard this when you were at Zap from Pete, but he said, you know, if I take an athlete who, who was full of talent and he truly believed that in order to be successful, he needed to run hard 200s every day. And he said, I think he could probably do pretty well. Um, <laughs> and so I struggled in college. There was a lot of pushback. Maybe I knew or I thought I knew too much. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of questioning about why we were doing things at this time. And uh, we recently interviewed an athlete who went from 20 miles a week in high school to 100 in college as a freshman. And he survived, fortunately. And we tried to talk about why. How did he survive that? That's crazy Mm -hmm. without getting hurt. Sure. And um, so pretty unique. But he just, I think it was his personality. He just accepted it. It was like he was part of this club. This is what we were doing. And I never really questioned, like, is this, is this sensible? You know? Sure. And um, so I think that has to play a role, right? So sure. I'm gathering that maybe there was pushback or... Definitely. So yeah. I, um, you know, I didn't have much experience. So first of mm. all, I didn't have that much knowledge. Uh, but the, my coach in high school, Jim Holdren, was very by the book, Jack Daniels. Yeah. So, like, oh, okay. everything was really specific paces, and it was really And that's your introduction. Clear. That was my introduction okay. to coaching and running in general. Um, and then my coach in college, she was also really specific. Mm. Uh, but sometimes I didn't – I would feel like I'm not responding to this, and then I would ask her questions about, you know, why are we doing this now? And, um, and – Sometimes my questions, you know, I'm now a college coach yeah. also, and I have been, I've coached college. Now this is my, what, third, fourth, fourth year okay. um, total. And I've noticed how kids ask me questions. And ultimately the thing that's, I'm the type of athlete who needs to understand the workouts in order to believe in them. And so I understand when they need, 
need that information totally and i want them to have that information i want them to believe in what they're doing um and they're gonna be athletes like me and not all of them but some of them and uh it's it all depends on how they ask the question you know that i can notice in myself how irritated i get with certain ways that people ask the question yeah uh versus others so i'll often try to give recommendations on how they should phrase the question next time you know maybe in general I I the I actually gave feedback this week to one of the kids on the team being like just ask a more specific question next time like mm. specifically like why are we doing 400s instead of 800s mm. or something like that um, or why are we doing this pace instead of something faster or whatever it sure is. Um, and then I would love to answer that question you know instead of are you training me for the 5k? Like, yeah. whoa, like, yeah. yeah, we've had that conversation already. Like, yeah, I can understand now as yeah. I've gotten more into coaching myself that you feel like it's sort of questioning, you know, your authority a little bit or your expertise, especially if it's in the setting of a group. Right. And more um, than that, I get upset with them thinking that I'm not thinking about them. Sure. You know, like that yeah. you really think I'm actually, and, and there are times where maybe I didn't, Like I had something else in my mind and I, it did like, I did slip up. So I want them to check me. Yeah, absolutely. If something doesn't make sense, you you need to let me know. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, And that's, I've, it's so hard to do that though, especially when it's something that's harder than you think you can do, or it's longer than you think you can do. It's so hard to tell your coach, Hey, I'm not sure Mm. if this is right for me Yeah, because you don't ever want to be that person who says like, I can't. You know. Yeah, and I think a lot of athletes are afraid to. Um, yeah. And then on the flip side, we see often just coaches don't communicate it um, clearly. What is the purpose? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm guilty know. of that too. Yeah, and I think that that's a challenge. Um, okay, cool. So we are getting through Case Western. You're getting faster. You're getting faster, right? As you progress through college, you mm-hmm. end up at Zap How, And talk a little bit about that transition between training in college to what the training transitioned to at that yeah so my last meet at case was nationals and i won the 10k and came back and broke 17 in the 5k two days later for the first time um the 10k was a big surprise i definitely had i mean i was up there maybe top five or something Mm -hmm. seed maybe not even but um you know i kind of surprised everybody and supposedly finished in a, my final lap was under 70, like a 68 or 69, depending on who you asked. Wow. And I know I was moving, like, and I've never broken 220 in the 800, so I don't even know how that was possible. But <laughs> yeah. uh, I was definitely really encouraged by that and excited. And I'd seen a lot of um, signs through my training, especially in the last two years, that I was definitely geared towards longer distances. I'd done, like, just so much hammering and so many long runs that, like, would have won numerous half marathons across the country. And so that gave me some thoughts about, like, okay, yeah, maybe I should There's a future beyond college. Yeah, and, you know, I watched uh, the New York City Marathon, I remember, the day after conference, my senior year, and cross country and um went out and hammered a long run after watching it and was just like this is so amazing i like really know that i can and then i came back and i saw that it was like 623 pace for my 15 mile long run and i was like that's like the pace i would have to run to qualify and i know that if i did that the day after a race i could probably do it for 10 more miles you Mm. know yeah um so i ended up signing up for the berlin marathon before i was done with school um, in April of my senior year because oh, wow. I was moving to Vienna. Okay. So as soon as I found out I was going to be teaching English uh, on a Fulbright in Vienna, I ended up signing up for the, the Berlin Marathon. And I ran, um, I just ran mileage basically all summer, did some 5Ks and stuff. Um, no coaching guidance. No coaching guidance. I just did mileage and I um, decided to wear Nike Pegasus in the race. Like I was not wearing mm-hmm. flats or any kind of racing shoe. Um, I had gotten the advice to take water at every single stop and that was, or especially from the beginning, and that was really good advice. Um, and I ended up running, my splits were 123... 15 or so 123.03 123.15 wow um 
something like that. Incredible. So super even splits. First Obviously, marathon. Yeah, it was hard, but like I knew I had so much more potential than two forty six. What so, did you feel like when you finished it? Do you feel? Did you feel I like I threw up? I had, yeah. Oh. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Did you feel like you you finished thinking, wow? I can run so much better than that. Or oh yeah, my goal was just to break three. I never want to do this again. Oh no, I definitely wanted. I you was, did. I, I was like hooked. Yeah, for cool. sure. And it was the day that um, Gabriel Selassie set the world record the second time. Wow. I think. Okay. I mean, he did it in 07. or no, it was maybe it was the first time. Oh eight. Um, but yeah, it was it was really good. At that point, you mentioned that Meb and and Janet Balkum I saw were role models. But when did that? At that point. Um, who were sort of the inspiration for you to, to continue? Well, um, I had read Paul Radcliffe's book. Okay. Junior year, like summer between my junior and senior year. And, you know, thought about the idea of maybe one day being able to run a 5K at the pace that she ran a marathon. <laughs> Still is definitely, yeah. I, I'm not sure that's in the cards for me. <laughs> um, but it was definitely motivating. One of the things I took away from it was her technique of counting mm. seconds. Um, and I applied it even farther because she would count, I think, kind of breaths. There was approximately a second apart. Yeah. And I took the um, philosophy behind cadence and applied that to the counting. So I would count seconds and try to get three steps per second. This is in the race. So that was something I started applying in my senior year for intervals, long runs, 10Ks. Okay. Um, and that I definitely have applied throughout the years for all of my like longer races. Whenever I get into a rhythm where I can tell that my um, either I'm starting a negative thought cycle or I am running by myself or I can feel that my cadence is slowing down, that's when I start to count seconds. So anyway, Paula Radcliffe was definitely a role model at that point after reading her book um, and just kind of thinking about the mental side of things in that way. I really didn't know much about American distance running at all because I was totally in my D3 bubble. So mm. I really, at that stage, I really had no idea. Um, and then my second year in Vienna, uh, so I got out of shape after running Berlin. I was still running like 50 to 70 miles a week, um, but I really did no workouts for almost an entire year. Uh, I had a great training partner, um, and it was just really fun. We'd go out and run 7.30 pace, like, every day. Mm. And um, he ended up running, like, a PR at the Vienna Marathon. I ran a 3.09, and I barely finished. Um, I severely dehydrated during that race because I just didn't take it seriously enough. It's Mm. funny because, like, after running your first one, you'd think you'd have some respect for the distance. But I think because Berlin went so well, I just, like, was like, oh, wing it, you know. It's totally fine. Um, and it was not fine. <laughs> it's definitely the worst marathon I've ever run. Um, so then after that, though, I got a coach. Um, I started working with Terry Shea in, okay. like, September of 2009. And he ended up training me for Seville, which was going to be my first attempt. Because that was when the window for 2012 first opened. was in, in January of 2010. Okay. So then I um, went ahead and... And ran Seville, and uh, his training was amazing. Like, I remember him telling me, like, within the week before the race, he's like, I think you can run under 242. And I was like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? And, of course, like, deep down, I really wanted to break 240 because that's what Zika had told me my senior year was, like, that was what I needed to do in order to make it onto the Zap team. And so it's you just were like, in contact with them at that point? Yeah, I had reached out to Hanson's and Zap okay. in my senior year of high school – or college, sorry – and then I had two years abroad, um, and I was so out of shape at the end of my first year. I was like, yeah, whatever. Nobody's yeah, going to pay yeah. any attention to me. Um, and so I had that kind of in the back of my mind as a motivator for qualifying and also for, like, the potential to actually run for a team. Sure. Um, and so I took that. I booked my own ticket. And, you know, like, I yeah. made my own way. I used the little tiny bits of Spanish I can understand and use. And What's that course like? It was super flat. Oh, my gosh. It was perfect conditions, like Mm -hmm. 38 degrees. And, um, you know, I had a bunch of people. Like, it starts on the Olympic track and ends in the stadium as well. And um, I I just remember it being so perfect and had a bunch of guys that, like, figured out. Like, we used our very limited, my very limited Spanish to figure out, like, what time I was trying to run. 
And they were like, oh, yeah, I'll help you. You know, like, it was, like, three guys who were going to help me. Um, and I ended up, went, I just, I ran 239.47. Wow. I start, I, my first half was 120.30, and I ran, like, The goal was sub, sub 240. You knew that was a ticket to zap, put yourself in a position to yeah. train full time, and, wow, amazing. Yeah. So that, um, then I, like, probably that week or days after I had sent them an email and was like, hey, I did it. And they're like, <laughs> what? Um, and, you know, awesome. contacted Jim Estes and got myself on the list for the Olympic trials. And I was, like, one of the only people on the list because it was a month since the team, like, the window yeah. had opened. Yeah. Um, so, cool. yeah, then once I was on that, it's funny because, like, a, a month before that, I I had applied for Teach for America this my senior year in college and then also my second year in Vienna and the first time I got rejected after the like phone call interview and yeah. the second time I got rejected after the in-person interview but when I read that second rejection letter I remember the first one I was like super insulted well like because it was like it's kind of mean it's like you were <laughs> not good enough to be selected it's sure. not it's not a competitive process it's sure, a selection sure. process but then the second time I was like oh I'm so relieved because I know what my purpose is, and I know what my wow. future is, okay. and I knew how fit I was, and that I was going to be able to do something that would get me on a team. Um, and I, you know, I just I look back on that day when I finished Seville. It was probably the one of the proudest moments of my entire running career. Even though like nobody knew me, I came yeah. across the finish line. Nobody knew what the American Olympic trials was sure. or that I had run at the time or that I was American. <laughs> like, That's cool. So they didn't know why I was so happy but or that I'd run a seven-minute PR. You know, like, um, yeah, it was it was definitely an awesome moment. That's special. Um, you moved then from Vienna to, to Blowing Rock? Yeah, so that, that was rough. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny. I, yeah. um, I applied to... Hansons and I was in touch with Hansons and Zap and McMillan at the time and I um, How did you make that choice? I ended up visiting all three and I visited Zap first and Zap was really close to home Relatively speaking it was only a five-hour drive. So I am I had okay. a grandmother who was like 90 ish so I it was nice to be able to go home and she ended up passing away in that first year that I was mm. um, Back home. So it was definitely I was glad to be on the East Coast for sure um, but it was also like a team. I was mostly looking at the team and kind of seeing my goal was to have a bunch of people I could train with. Didn't really achieve that goal at Zap because yeah. I was mostly with men. And mm. um, what was the break breakdown at that time? How when many I, athletes, men and women? My first year, we had three women for the first month or so, and then it was down to two women and like eight okay. or nine guys. Mm. Um, so yeah, and Alyssa McKegg was my teammate and she, the whole time, and she was definitely a lot faster than me the whole time. So it just was tough. Yeah. What Um, about the training, the, the actual workouts, the philosophy? It's funny because Cole, uh, my husband Cole and I talk about this a lot because we were both there and, um, you know, Terry had coached me prior to Zap and he ended up coaching me after Zap as well. So those are the two main systems that I am familiar with in terms of marathon training. And honestly, the, the workouts aren't that different. The expectations were the only difference. Sure. So it was like, I, and maybe some of those were, uh, you know, self-projected. Like, yep. I I thought I had to be better than I was, and that was how I was going to get better. Um, but instead of where and Terry... You, you felt like you didn't thrive under that. Yeah, I felt like I was kind of suffocating myself yep. in that in those expectations. Have um, you followed Melinda Elmore's story recently at all? Oh, know I know Melindy? the name. Yeah. So Melinda ran at Stanford, um, oh, Canadian yes. Olympian, yeah. fifteen hundred. Uh huh. Um, retired from the sport. Sure. Got into triathlons. Triathlon. Mm-hmm. Her husband was an Olympian, fifteen hundred meter runner. Mm-hmm. He became a good triathlete. So she gets into triathlons, and. I think her first marathon was in her first Ironman, and she ran right around three hours. It was yeah. like one of the fastest debuts. And um, then over time, she starts enjoying the marathon training yeah. and jumps in a marathon. And I think she just ran... The Canadian record. Yeah, the Canadian record At was like what, 226. What, how old is she? 
to so Melindy's I think thirty nine, okay. just turning forty. Yeah, she's not yet forty. Um, she. So anyway, my point is not to get too much into her story, but my point is that she just attributes a lot of this to she is having fun. She appreciates yeah. the sport. She appreciates the workouts more. There's no expectation. Yeah. And, um, Except just, now she's kind of ruined that for herself. <laughs> she <laughs> never like, thought of herself as a marathon. Sure, but you, I yeah. mean, that's the thing is like once you've achieved success, yep. you have to remember what got you there. And that's kind of where I went wrong as we yeah. discussed at the beginning of the conversation. But also change, I think the other part of it too is the, the amount of cross training that she did mm, and maybe yeah. just getting stronger totally. in other ways. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, I appreciate that just talking about expectations and Mm -hmm. um suffering under that that yeah no i i'm definitely one of those people that would much rather set my expectations way too low and way (laughs) overachieve yeah um than the other way around yeah (laughs) and then then like for instance you know setting a pr which this is something that actually happened while i was at zap i set like a 13 second pr in the 5k and was sobbing uncontrollably afterwards Mm. that just seems that's just now I look back and I'm like that's just not right. Right. Like I would never want an athlete I'm coaching to that's feel that hard. way about a PR. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard. So you're still improving at Zap. I was. But, yes, definitely. But it wasn't an environment you felt like um, was conducive to to helping you grow as an athlete, essentially, yeah. right? And no, I mean so- I and I'm incredibly uh, grateful for all of the support that they gave me, and I know that I wouldn't have achieved what I did afterwards. Yeah without all of that like it's a learning work and you know the just being in that environment and it's one thing that I do miss about being in that situation is just being surrounded by people who are also working towards the goal makes you not feel quite so weird for believing that you can do something you know um and so that that part I definitely do miss but um I know that yeah it's it's been a little bit it's been a it's been a good thing for me to see more, a broader spectrum of talent. So, for instance, as soon as I left Zap, I went to Ryder University and was coaching some mid major D one kids um, with a friend of yours, Bob Hamer. So coaching, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And he was really great. He didn't let me actually write workouts, but I got to learn a lot from him in terms of, especially since he was more of a miler himself. Yep. In terms of his own specialty. Um, I learned a lot about middle distance rate um, training, and he did. He was a great distance coach as well. So leaving Zap, then, that's when the coaching started coming into yeah. play. So, I kind of always knew that. Yeah. I was either going to be a teacher or a coach, and that's why I applied for Teach for America, is because it just seemed like the right awesome. next step. And um, and now with my knowledge and background in coaching, it almost and the sport, the fact that I've asked so many questions throughout the time that I've been coached, yeah. like it would be a waste to not use that information. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So then from Ryder, where did you go from there? So I spent two years at Ryder, and that was during that time I had the best, I mean, it was 13 to 15, so I placed third at the U.S. Championships right off the bat in October mm-hmm. of that first year. Then I um, ran my PR of 233 in April the following season then I uh, won the US championships in 2014 and then at the very end I was training for worlds by the time I left in 2015 I set all my track record uh, I ended up focusing on the track that spring and set all my track records as well Um, so then I left because I got married um, in Blowing Rock North Carolina so my husband Cole was still with Zap at that point and uh, we ended up moving into a house in Blowing Rock and so back from Jersey back to Blowing Rock, yeah. Awesome. Oh, so you did stay in town for a bit. Yes, we okay. lived in we lived in Blowing Rock for a year. Okay. When I came back from from New Jersey, and I helped out with App State during that year. Got mm-hmm. it. Okay. All right. Cool. I mean, one of the, reflecting on my experience at Zap, um, it's one of the things that I appreciate most is just being around athletes of different you know stripes and influences. Yeah. And, also connecting with uh, with coaches. So at this point now, you've you've worked with Hamer, you've worked with um, Terrence, right? Yeah. Uh, you worked with with Pete. Yeah. Um, so, how have those relationships really informed, you know, your coaching today? It sounds like you've had a knack for teaching and wanting yeah. to coach to begin well, with, but just um, 
you know, what are some of the things that you've learned and have been able to apply now to your athletes as a coach? So, yeah, one of the things that Hamer kind of hammered in real quickly, he he uh, he <laughs> could see what what I was thinking about certain athletes, and he, he would tell me, like, maybe on a monthly basis, Esther, they're not you. And I think that is really an important mm. lesson as a coach, like, we often, and I, I, I have to catch myself, even like when I'm in an injury cycle and I'm prescribing workouts to somebody who is either coming off of injury and they're doing really great or they're like, you know, just super fit. Like it, I notice my inclination to like dial it back a little bit because I'm afraid of injury more when mm-hmm. I'm injured Yeah. versus like if I'm running really well, I'm like, yeah, sure, sure they can do that. Like, yeah. absolutely. And I'm like kind of more... Uh, willy-nilly with like, yeah. letting them kind of roll with things and do multiple races in a short period of time or whatever it is, you know, like, I and I have to observe my own bias at all times and make sure that I'm not, like, entering that into this specific athlete and what they need at that moment. Mm. One of the things that just thinking again, now touching on when things were going really well, oftentimes we see athletes get into trouble right yeah and i always think of jack when he says um you know why are you adding more in see how far you can go where you know with the amount of training you're doing today before you decide you need more you know or maybe look at some other areas that can help you improve whether it's the mental side like Mm -hmm. um or it's cross training or or some other things what Outside of the running workouts or, or mileage, you know, what have you learned along the way that you sort of wish you knew early on? Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny when you say that about, like, uh, adding more. So that was the other element of Boston 2017 was not only was I trying to hit 542 for everything mm. because we really focus on pace work, um, I was also doing more mileage like there was just more volume to each of the workouts and uh, I think that definitely because it was like well how are we going to get you faster if we don't do more and like yeah but we've been getting faster without me doing more like we don't and I think that partly was because like I kind of stagnated on in terms of my times I kept on running like 236 ish 237 what was your mileage um <clears throat> when you ran 239 in Seville what oh, was your yeah, that's a good question. what was your peak mileage and then when you were 11th at the trials in 16, what was your peak mileage? Was it relatively the same or no? So when I ran Seville, I peaked out at maybe 75, okay. maybe one week of 80, but like most of the weeks between 65 and 75 and probably more towards the like 70 yeah. end. Um, and I would say then while I was at Zap, I kind of jumped into 90s and then got up to like 115 ish mm. by my third year there and then when i started working with terry we went back to a little bit to like 95 to 105 that was kind of where we okay ended up hanging out so and 239 at 75 mile a week peak yeah and then you get down to what your pr today is 233 correct yeah and so that was that was with terry after zap and that was after we kind of dialed it back a little bit. And I still but was 100, running about 105. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, a lot of that cycle was around 100 to 105. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, one of the things that I appreciated when we had Lynn Jennings at one of our coaching clinics, she said there was always this pressure. Like for a long time, things weren't going well because she was too concerned about what others what her competition was doing and what she'd hear if they're running this in workouts, I need to be doing this. And uh, she Only finally had to- worse. She, yeah, <laughs> she's right with social media. This is pre-social media. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, so it was interesting how she kind of pulled back and, and was focused on doing her own thing. I remember there was a guy at Zap who ran 341 or something like that in a 1500 off of, was Brendan O'Keefe there? <laughs> When you were there? No, he was not there. He was not. He was there in spirit. But Brendan, yeah, of of course. Um, Brendan, I think, was only running like three or four times a week. I mean, talk about compared to some of the guys he was beating, probably running, you know, 90 miles a week to 100. So Yeah, you see that with Donovan Brazier, too. He doesn't do a whole lot of mileage. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's, um, that 
seems to be a challenge, right? Especially in the recre- recreational athletes that we coach a lot now too. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the assumption is, well, in order to break four hours or I need to run this much, yeah, right? Sure. And it just varies so much um, individually. And um, a lot of it is like, especially with a four hour marathon or thinking about time on feet and not yeah. the not looking at somebody else's mm. mileage who, when they're running seven minutes per mile and you're running 10 to 11 minutes per mile, yeah. it's a big difference. Yeah, it's amazing all the information out there and people are still so focused on the mileage and they don't consider that. Yeah. Um, how's the transition been? So today you're coaching um, a collegiate team, right? Mm-hmm. And you're also coaching athletes on VDOT. Um, so how has that been, especially working with more recreational athletes? How have you been able to sort of connect with those athletes? Has that been a challenge? And No, I mean, that's yeah. one thing about the platform of VDOT that makes yeah. it so helpful is like, I know what it's like for me to do 400s at threshold. I know how much recovery I need. Um, and then I can also... When I so then I can just plug in 400s at threshold. Then I can see how long is this taking that person, and translate that into okay. If I were running, you know, this intensity for that many minutes total, you know, like how would I break it up? And and that's what's really helpful about the platform is that mm. I don't have to, like I it helps me. It helps translate. Literally, it's like a it's like a body translation. So I can look at like okay the minutes that I would spend at this effort versus the minutes that they're spending at that effort and, you know, like, and figure out exactly that way I can put my feet in their shoes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so technology, speaking of technology and coaching, um, what are some of the benefits you see with the rise of, of technology integration with running and training? And what are some of the downsides at the same time? So within myself, I feel (laughs) like, um, I have gotten so lazy with logging since I started using a, a GPS watch mm. because I just count on it to keep to remember what I've done. Um, yeah. And I also know that like I used to, I mean, I was just a total nut. I would come home from my run and I would log out or, or like map out each of my runs. So you know that it's pulling in and it's there, but you're saying now you're less likely to maybe pay to attention or analyze or write my notes about it. Right. Yeah, I mean. And, and like say how everything felt and that is such an important piece of the equation you can't just rely on mm. splits to tell you how things were going um and you know maybe part of it is that i as soon as i'm actually doing good workouts i'll care more and i'll want to like really plug in and yeah. and be like oh you know i ran it for that that 800 was this and you know like um so i think that has some element to it but i it also just makes me less invested in my own running like when I had to remember each turn of my run so that I remember how to so I can map it out later like I was just so much more present in what I was doing Mm. and I think that is something that gets kind of lost with using your GPS the funny thing is I thought that working with a college group they would all be even better at technology than I am but I cannot tell you the number of people who actually like start yeah stop save yeah and then start again right. for every single interview. Right. I mean, interval. Interval, yeah. Every single interval. Yeah. And then they're like, what? You have a lap button? Mm. Then they don't know how to use a double tap on, on their iP- like on their Apple Watch yeah. to actually take a split. So, so I've ones, had to like really do tutorials with each of them on each of their watches. On the collegiate team, they're out there with yes. the Apple Watch? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Is it more Garmin, though, than... Than anything? Um, it's just a combination of Apple Watch. Uh, this, yeah. It's an increasing number of Apple Watches because they use it for everything else. So they just, you know. Right. Yeah. It's too expensive to buy something yeah, else. Yeah. Why would for, you buy two? Running. Yeah. And yeah. then also, if you're going to buy one that's going to get all of your data, like sleep data and heart rate right. data and stuff. And I would say Garmin's still catching up to Apple Watch's heart rate data. Or they're like kind of getting comparable, but it's like you have to buy a really yeah. expensive Garmin one, whereas you could get a pretty. Okay, yeah. Apple, you know, like if that's the type of thing you're looking for. Now, those kids aren't using their resting heart rate information. They're not using their uh, variable, you know, like whatever. Right. Um, heart rate variability stuff. They're, they're not, they're really even, they look at their splits and that's about it. Sometimes they're auto lap stuff. Um, but yeah, and then the other thing that drives me crazy is the number of people who think that their watch is more accurate than a track. Mm. They think their watch is more accurate than a course, like a certified course. Mm. Um, now, sometimes they'll put the mar- mile markers in the wrong spot. That does happen. Yeah. But 
If you run a 5K that was measured and your watch says you ran 3.5 miles and it's a certified course, it was actually a 5K. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We see that often in in local practices in New York where they're like, this is long or this is is too short. The track part is really what drives me crazy. Yeah. And Koros actually does have a really good setting where you can... um, They have a new new track they actually have setting. an actual track setting where yeah. it measures properly and calculates your pace properly, and that's very helpful. Shout out to Koros. Shout out to Koros. Um, that's cool. And then the other thing, too, I think that as much as Garmin can help, um, no one's really listening to their body, right? Yes. Sort of focused on, like... That is the other thing. Looking at the pace. And then... the, the big thing with... So Terry Shea was coached by the Hansons. Yeah. And he brought that kind of effort-based philosophy to all of his athletes he had 13 athletes who qualified for 2016 wow so i mean he's a really great marathon coach and that's something that has really stuck with me is always just doing marathon effort stuff yeah and if you're totally distracted by your watch and you see like if your marathon pace is for instance there were when i ran 30 or 233 550 pace for the marathon there were lots of workouts where I was running effort and it was 6.15 to 6.20. Mm. And that was honest. And I had the confidence to be able to know that I had put in the work yeah. that day. That's hard mentally, though. Yeah. Like when you're seeing have... it constantly, yeah. it is. Whereas if, like, back in the day, you had a Timex and you didn't necessarily have mile markers. Right. You just went 15 minutes. Right. And I think that's something that Zap had that is actually a benefit. Is like everything's kind of effort-based and you don't really know what your fitness is until you show up for a race. Right. Yeah. I can't imagine training at altitude i haven't done much of it but just seeing so much slower paces yeah, than sure. you're gonna run on race day i think mentally has got to be a little unnerving and in some ways it could help you a lot sure you could imagine some kind of translation yeah. like you don't really know yeah. what it's gonna be mm-hmm. yeah i mean it just goes to show you like how much of the sport is mental right um yeah, absolutely so we're looking forward to cheering you on tomorrow thanks even though it's For a party it's a celebration right yeah yeah so Appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time, and I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of your podcast. <laughs> thanks, Esther. Take care. Awesome.